Hi, it's Aya Wiemela. I'm here in Crystal Lake, Illinois, and it's Friday, October the 9th. I've been uh, watching squirrels feeding under the tree outside, and what I notice about them is even, <laughs> even the squirrels are always bickering with each other. There's always somebody being kind of bossy. Uh, we might call it play, but I can hear them make little, like, angry sounds. You know, they're kind of, there's, there's always somebody. No matter where we go, we're going to find difficult people, right? It's <laughs> maybe limited resources, maybe just woke up on the wrong side of the tree this morning. I don't know, but, uh, it's fun to watch them, but I also notice that they're not not always super nice to each other. So they're like people that way, too. Um, yes, this morning I woke up to the wonderful news that the Nobel Peace Prize is, was awarded, or is was awarded, I guess, just today or uh, yesterday from Sweden, to the World Food Program. And I thought that was such a wonderful choice that they made, um, that there's so many people using food in the world to actually control people. And they're willing to starve people for their, for their political ends. And that's still happening. And the World Food Program goes into very dangerous places and, uh, people are committed to getting food everywhere they can where people are suffering. And and more and more it's because of political reasons and uh, a byproduct of war or the precursor to war. So I was so delighted to see that that was being given to that group, part of the UN. And uh, apparently they weren't even on the short list of, of uh what people were speculating about, so the surprise for the director, it was a delightful uh, interview on the news with him because he was so delighted for the people in his organization and for the for any kind of spotlight on the problems with world hunger and especially when it's being forced on people because of war and political reasons. Um, he felt like that would be so good for the for for the world to be more involved and be more concerned about that. And it really struck me, I mean, I was so glad I heard that, uh, because yesterday I was getting sidetracked on YouTube with some, I was listening to some different teachers, but then I saw a documentary, oh, probably back in, 2000 or 1999 that was done uh, in England and it was on the Irish potato famine that was 1845 to 1849 and I wanted to see that because I wanted to know more of the specific details about the famine and uh, felt like I had missed some of the some some of the really important uh, ideas and and what had actually happened in the number of people. So over the course of that famine, there were probably four million lives lost. And people are still upset about it today. I mean, it's still, it's still alive in the minds of people. 
And many, many of the Irish who became part, just woven into the fabric so easily in America, well, it wasn't easy for them, but we see it today. Uh, those, that's the, the result of the famine was so many people immigrating to the U.S. and to Canada and to other places where they could create lives. But what was so shocking all through the documentary was they're in Ireland and they were, they were uh, like a colony of uh, Great Britain. And I think Great Britain just used them to be able to give land to wealthy aristocrats. And they were that close to that great, at the time, probably the greatest. And the British had so much disdain and so little concern for the Irish that the only groups that were trying to feed the Irish were groups like the Quakers and different religious groups and uh, some groups that would even, you know, feed people if they would promise to uh, move over to their religion. And the Irish were primarily Catholic, and there was often the Church of Ireland, which was uh, the Protestant church, would have food, but it would only be, be served to people who were willing to convert. So that there were so many things in that documentary that stunned me, even even knowing how the world is today. It was so hard to imagine, and there were grains in storage in Ireland that were there to kind of keep control over the prices of, of wheat and oats, uh, to keep the merchant's prices at a, at a lower level, at an attempt to keep them at a lower level, and they were never release to feed the starving people. And it was so shocking to realize that the, the of course we didn't of course it, we didn't have internet then, obviously, but um, even the people who were ruling Ireland, even the people who were aware and had seen and knew about the starving people couldn't be bothered to help feed them. And I've always admired Quakers, and they were really the first and one of the main groups to come and, and help people and feed them. But there would sometimes be uh, 9,000 people who were starving people gathered for one food, one, uh, food kitchen that was giving food, and the people had, they were living on literally nothing. There was nothing. There they had no crops. They were eating grass. They were eating uh, shellfish out of the the uh, ocean that they that they couldn't even cook, and so they were getting diarrhea and fevers and getting sick from the things they were eating right out of the ocean waters, and eating raw seaweed and grass. And you know they were they were just sick. They were this the the more they were starving, the sicker they became just from their struggles to survive. And, and I thought about uh, how the repercussions of that have rippled down for the over, you know, since the middle 1800s and, and the anger that's still there and how, um, how easy it would have been to fix that problem there was even food there waiting 
that wasn't probably never used. And uh, all the repercussions from that. And I was so stunned, but it, I was really glad I watched it because it really was gave me more insight into the nature of this human condition we're in. And then to wake up this morning and see that the Nobel Peace Prize was given to the World Food Program made my heart sing. It's not because the problems still exist, but because there is this global recognition and there'll be more focus on the fact that using starvation of people as a way to gain uh, power seems to be at, at one of those extreme points of what the world has, has, come, has come to. And I'm sure this has been happening all through history, but there's no reason for it to be happening today. The entire world is watching. We can all see and know what's happening. And uh, it just really woke me up to the, to the depth of the problem. I've, I know uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has the world uh, food, the global relief program. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering the correct name. Um, and he has, he has a wonderful, he's, he's raised so much uh, money and, and put a spotlight on uh, the need for jobs and ways for people to be self-sustaining in this country and, and in other countries and has done a wonderful job with, where other people are uh, unable to go and unable to get to, but they've, they've risked li- their lives to get into those countries and get food to people. It seems like such a simple thing, but it's so profound. And I think for young people, how inspiring to think here is an effort that's that's really going beyond politics and beyond uh, something that makes someone look good, but they're putting their lives in danger to help other people just to be fed. And it seems like such a basic. I know this is one of the reasons Bhikkhu Bodhi took on global uh, global issues around lacks of food uh, as a project he felt he could be very supportive of because this is a basic need. How can how can anyone? And the Buddha often said this: a person with an empty stomach. We, you don't teach them Dhamma, you feed them first. And I've always loved that teaching, and that's that recognition. We are not, we're not free enough to even hear the Dhamma if, if, we're, if we're hungry, if we need to eat, if our children are hungry. Uh, we have to have those basic needs met, and not at the, not at the cost of, uh, someone else's political agenda. So uh, these are such beautiful efforts in our world, and there's no reason in today's world that these should even be problems. So for young people, what a wonderful thing to think about and to see how you can use your imagination and your uh, sense of what life can hold for you by, by following some noble path that can help Uh, change the attitude this world has about using food as a weapon. 
So I, I just thought the uh, serendipity, serendipitousness of my watching that documentary yesterday made this even more profound for me today. So I'm celebrating that. That's my joy for today and looking for ways to be supportive even more. So let's, uh, I wanted to read something, just a short, well, this might be, this might fit in with this too. This is something from, it's called Awakening the Compassionate Heart. And it's also from the little book, booklet, Peace and Kindness, that we do the metta practice from. But it's um, talking about inspiring people. This is from a, a monk who was one of Ajahn Chah's forest monks, but was a Westerner. And um, they're celebrating, I think it, they're, they're talking about celebrating a holiday, and it's Easter Sunday. He's saying it's interesting to reflect that what led the Buddha onward in his search for enlightenment that primary driving energy of compassion was also present in the life of Christ. It was the concern for fellow humanity of the sharing of the reality of life with all of its insecurities, all of its pain and unsatisfactoriness. It seems that the more that individuals free themselves from the personal predicament, the more they are really in touch with the universal predicament, this is what brings up the response of compassion in the heart. When we realize that this apparent separateness between us is only illusory, then we can't help but allow our lives to be lived for the benefit of others. No longer can we just react in our habitual way for the sake of whatever pleasure or pain we may be experiencing. We become aware of a shared predicament our shared humanity. And I find that it's this awareness of our shared humanity where we come in touch with the compassionate heart, usually without being aware of it at first, when we begin to appreciate what we have in common with those around us. Then we realize that there are basically no boundaries, no ultimate separation, there is an interconnection which we can all be sensitive to and through which we can come in contact with each other. It's this theme of shared humanity, humanity which I find very relevant for our time. A time, now this is, he's, he's writing in uh, 1995 to 1999, I think. This is a time when we may be losing our sensitivity to it. A time when the trials and tribulations of a very confused world may lead us to forget what we know. It's in this forgetfulness that we live carelessly. But if one were to feel the call, if one were to feel the call of the compassionate heart, there's a path one can take in daily life. One can see there is always an opportunity to serve. Through being in touch, through remembering, through very, through the perhaps the very first step, 
is to recognize our forgetfulness. Because until we are are in touch with the quality and nature of forgetfulness, then we're not really ready to remember. Sometimes the act of compassion may be just in recognizing one's own fear and anxiety, those things which come up in relationship to people we meet. Often we sweep such anxieties under the rug for the sake of of being able to smile and put on a polite social act. But is this really giving something of value to the other person? It's difficult sometimes to convince ourselves otherwise, but I think it's worth having the courage to be more in touch with what our feelings genuinely are, to really be there with that anxiety, that worry, with that subtle fear and discomfort, then we begin to see what effect this is actually having upon our ability to communicate and to share. Talking about the call of the compassionate heart. And doesn't that describe, that? those last sentences really describe what the people in the, uh, the World Food Program are doing. You see them going into war-torn areas where they can easily be taken hostage, where they can easily be killed. Uh, they're, they're opening them, themselves up to disease and uh, scenes of death all around them. And suffering when they can't help people. The, the, uh, the head of the group said, you know, they, they can be consumed with the people they can't help or the people they can't. It was even that much more meaningful but then just the exposure to their program to win the Nobel Peace Prize was making his heart sing. So um, the call of our compassionate heart, this is something that can get any of us out of our current focus on our own situation, maybe here in this country. We might be worried about the, the elections coming up, we might be worried about the pandemic and the direction our, this, the pandemic is going in. So if you can think, use your compassionate heart to guide you in something you can do to help out, even if it's calling a few people, even if it's reaching out to people that you think uh, might just need a, need a phone call, might just need a text, or... Uh, do something. We have, we're so lucky here. We have food pantries. We have places where we can drop off our excess food. We can drop off groceries we buy, especially for people, and take them and deposit them so easily in places where that food can reach people here in our own country who aren't, aren't eating properly. So there's so many easy ways for us to do it. Just think of opening your heart wider and look beyond the little, these are little things that we're dealing with in our own lives usually that are causing us to be upset or, or hurt or angry or despondent. Um, but if we can open up that feeling of the compassionate heart, we can be finding ways to, to help. 
And that can lift that load of our own baggage. You know, get, we need to get beyond ourselves and see how we're connected to the bigger world. And there's so much we can do without going very far from home. And, uh, and I know people are, are in distress these days. I know it's difficult. And I know we're having a hard time communicating with each other because of the political gulf there is between us. And people who would ordinarily be friends are having difficulties maintaining their relationships. And these are, this is very sad to see. And, um, and to be, you know, to see it in our, and for me to see it in my own family. So, um, let's look beyond our, our, our me. <laughs> because this world, everything is not about me or mine or who I, who I am, who I need to, who I need to let other. So, um, have a beautiful day. Think of something. Uh, think of something you can do to help today. It can be just as small as smiling at someone, or uh, letting letting someone get in front of you if you're at the grocery store, or if you can paying someone's you know paying a bill forward if you're getting a cup of coffee. But. Uh, while we don't have to be in agreement with people, regardless of who they are, we can remember all people need our metta. They need our loving kindness because we have to believe that all people are happier when they feel uh, goodwill coming towards them. And if they if they are filled with goodwill themselves... Um, they can there's there is always the hope of of them their that their own needs are being met in terms of love and goodness around them that that will cause them to be uh more loving and more kind it's it's worked for us right so we know it can work for others but uh we need to we need to keep sending goodwill so if don't feel like, well, there's nothing else I can do. I'll send a metta to people. That's a big thing to do. And that's a way to keep your hearts open and compassionate. Okay, so have a beautiful day. And think, think about this. There's no reason that anybody in this world should be hungry. Okay, much peace to you. And thank you for being part of my practice. Bye-bye.